Father, we praise you for this day of life that you've given to us. For without you alone, we would have no sufficiency, no future, no hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the grace that you supplied through your death, burial, and resurrection, that we have a future and a hope for those who have believed in Jesus for everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens, you are the sovereign God, and you are working all things out for your glory and for the good of your people. We thank you for this day of life that you've given to us and for each one here. And, Lord, in this holiday weekend, we think back and think of the freedoms we enjoy in this country by your gracious hand and by your divine appointment. And, Lord, also you've chosen to use our military from time to time, and we praise you for that. Thank you for those who have sacrificed their lives to preserve this freedom we enjoy. And, Lord, uh, some of us have family members or friends who were uh, uh, killed in a war, and we pray, Lord, that we would be comforted today, and, Lord, that we would remember these things uh, through this day and tomorrow. Thank you for your word that is given to us in our own language. We praise you for the privilege that that is, but yet, Lord, we are humbled by it. We recognize that not Christians everywhere around the world do not have the word in their own heart language yet. We pray for Bible translators who work diligently work at uh, com- completing uh, texts of Scripture for each one. And, Lord, we thank you for this passage today, and we pray that we'd be attentive and teachable And recognize that your Holy Spirit ultimately is the one who teaches us and applies the truth to our lives. And so we pray uh, that I would have clarity of speech and of thought as I present these truths to each one today. And that all of us, as we sit under the teaching of the word, would be transformed because of this time in your word and with one another and in your presence, Lord. We thank you for your church and for blessing us with this local expression of the body of Christ. We thank you for this campus you've provided And we thank you for our children in Children's Church and in the nursery and for those who care for them there. And today, Lord, we ask that you would be adored, honored, and glorified and praised uh, through our lips and our lives. And we thank you that you are the Almighty God. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Good to see you. I don't know if you remember Chan Gailey. Chan Gailey was a National Football League coach. He was a head coach of the Dallas Cowboys and of the Buffalo Bills. And uh, he had quite a career. He's retired now, but he tells a story about a lesson he learned one time. Uh, At that time, uh, Chan Gailey was head coach of Alabama's Troy State University, and they were playing for a national championship. And uh, the week before the big game, he was headed out of the offices for practice when one of the secretaries called him back and said he had a phone call. And Gailey recounts that he was somewhat irritated because he had things to do, and he told her to take a message because he's on his way to practice. And she responded. She said, but Mr. Gailey, it's Sports Illustrated. And uh, that stopped him in his tracks, and he said, I'll be right there. And so he turned around and he made his way into the building. And as he made his way back to the building, he was thinking about the upcoming article they undoubtedly would write about his coaching abilities and Troy State University. It would be a great publicity for a small school to be in Sports Illustrated. And as he got closer, he realized and was thinking that a three-page article would not be sufficient to tell the whole story. And coming even closer to his office, he started thinking that he might even be on the cover of that issue of Sports Illustrated. And so he's asking himself, should I pose or should I just go with an action shot, he wondered. And his head was spinning with all the possibilities that were before him. 
He picked up the phone and said, hello, and the person on the other end said, is this Chan Gailey? And he said, yes, it is. He replied very confidently and anticipating what was to come next. The person said, this is Sports Illustrated. We're calling to let you know that your subscription is running out. Are you interested in renewing your subscription? Well, Coach Gailey records uh, that he says that he concluded this story by saying, you're either humble or you will be humbled. And that's Chan Gailey's story. Maybe you can identify with Chan Gailey a bit. Uh, You know, one person has said, if pride is the first sin, then humility is the first virtue. If pride is the first sin, then humility is the first virtue. Years ago, I learned uh, the first rule of the spiritual life, and it goes like this. He's God, and I'm not. Okay? Just memorize that rule, and you'll go a long ways in spiritual growth. He's God, and I'm not. All spiritual growth starts with this truth. And until you grasp what it means, you're still going to be in spiritual preschool. Okay? And we're here to grow in Christ and grow in our understanding of what he is doing and what he has for us. And so we need to understand that. Because pride shuts out grace, doesn't it? Grace is that unmerited favor that God gives us. It's expressed supremely in Jesus Christ, taking our place on the cross of Calvary on that first Easter. And rising again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And so pride shuts out that grace. And pride enters our hearts because we measure ourselves by human standards and not by God's standards. Isn't that really the case all the time? I mean, I look at social media, I look at pop culture, and there's always this measuring going on concerning who we are, what kind of person we are, but it's always based on human standards. Am I tall enough? Am I, am I strong enough? Am I good-looking enough? Do I dress well enough? And all those things with human standards rather than by God's standards. And so it can become a point of pride or a point of difficulty, either one in our lives. So today I pray that we'd, I would have clarity and courage, conviction and compassion as we look at this passage of Scripture that Bill read for us today. We're in the little letter of James towards the back of your Bibles. And if you'd find your way to James chapter 4, we're continuing our study in the book of James. Remember, James is the earliest New Testament book, probably written, I believe, around 36 AD. And it was well before the next earliest book, which is Paul's letter to the Galatians in 49 AD. And so James is writing early, and it has a Jewish flavor because, remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the pastor at the Church of Jerusalem, one of the leaders. And uh, he is writing to people who have been dispersed, young Hebrew Christians. They were young in their faith. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we see that the church in Jerusalem, because of persecution, was dispersed. And most of those who were dispersed, these refugees, if you will, fled towards the east part of the Roman Empire. And so James is writing to them, and he recognizes that there's a lot of trouble in their midst. Uh, They probably settled in small groups in different areas and different communities, and there was ongoing persecution. There was ongoing trouble. There were fights among them. And so James is writing to correct them. Remember, James is not a doctrinal book. It's not a book about heavy doctrine, but it's a book about how to apply the doctrine, the things we say we believe, to our lives. It's a book of ethical instruction. And James gets in our face. You know, if you've read through James, if you've been with us in James, he gets right up close and personal, doesn't he? And so James today, it's no different as he goes on today. 
And uh, in this portion of chapter 4 of the book of James, you have to understand the context. Clear back in chapter 3, he talks about our verbal sin. You know, the tongue is a fire. Who can control it? And then he asks the question in chapter 3, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? And he talks about the differences between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he wants the people who are reading or listening to the proclamation of this book to choose the heavenly wisdom uh, from above. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he starts out, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he goes on to say, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, our own personal lust, our own desire to want what we want when we want it. And so you can tell by reading these verses that James is concerned about how these people are living out their belief in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so he's going on with this issue, basically this war of the world uh, that is going on. But then he is teaching us about humility about humility. And in verses, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, there's a series of imperative verbs. Now, an imperative verb has the force of a command. So you can say it is a command. And we see a number of these commands here, which flesh out what it means to have true humility in the eyes of the Lord. If obeyed, these commands contribute to peace in our lives, peace with one another, and to glory to Jesus Christ himself. So in this passage, we're going to discover six steps, six steps that unlock the path uh, to God's blessing for his children. As I was driving down the road yesterday, uh, we went someplace, I don't know, but they say the first thing that goes is memory, you know, short-term memory. Uh, But uh, one thing, every time I drive, I try to pay attention to the road signs. And uh, there's interestingly that, uh, you know, our highway department has placed road signs and it's for our protection, for the protection of others. And they instruct the traveler how to reach his destination safely. And of necessity, when you look at these road signs, these signs are short, descriptive, and pointed. Well, James has road signs here that are short, descriptive, and pointed. He provides us with a number of these signs as we travel along life's highway, and it's uh, suited to our hurried pace of life. These sentences are concise, colorful, and direct. And so there are six actions or six road signs to pay attention to, and it depends on a decision of our wills. It's actually a decision of my will whether or not I'm going to follow this command or not. This command from God himself, he used James to write them down, but these are commands from God. The first road sign we see or the first action we see is to take a knee. Take a knee is how I would put it in verses 6 and first part of 7. tells us there, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Notice that God has opposition to those who are proud, which makes complete sense when the first sin was pride, the pride of Lucifer to, to uh, uh, want to be like God, and he was tossed out of heaven. And so this opposition, the word opposes or resist, it's a military term, and it means to battle against. So when we find pride raising up in our lives, uh, we recognize that God is going to battle that. 
It is a military exercise, and who wants to battle God, really? And then the first part of 7, he tells us, submit, therefore, to God. Submit. Submit is a military term. It means to be subordinated to or to be under right uh, place in, in our lives. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from the 19th century, used to pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. Because <laughs> immediately when you think you're humble, you're not. And uh, so uh, I like the story about some tourists who were in Nigeria, and they saw a sign painted on the side of a bus, and the sign said, Man, no be God. Man, no be God. And that pretty much sums it up. Because when we are shot through with pride, uh, it means that we are without any need of God himself. We aren't God. We never were. We never will be. Start there, and you're on the right path. James, when he says to submit here in the first part of verse 7, means to obey. Uh, Luke uses the same verb in Luke chapter 251, where he's describing Jesus, who was 12 years old at that time, and says he was obedient to Mary and Joseph. It is the same verb that is used there. The wording submit yourselves describes a voluntary act. It is a decision of the will that we are going to place ourselves under someone of authority, someone else to show respect and obedience. And, of course, our society is full of illustrations of that. Just the military is great illustrations of that. A general and a private doesn't mean that either one is less human or more human, but it means they have a ranking there. When a Christian submits to God, satanic forces seek to interfere. Uh, We need to recognize that. And when we pray, your will be done, we have dismissed pride and are submissive to God and to his commands. But if we want to go there, if we want to be there, we need to recognize and be ready for the fact that we must fight back. The second part of verse 7, look at the second part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil is the command, it is the imperative verb. That word resist means to take a stand against. Take a stand against. It means to stand and fight. It doesn't mean to run away. We are to flee temptation, Scripture tells us, but we are to fight the devil. That means taking up the armor of God and standing in the evil day. I would point you to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, where it says, Finally, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Notice where the ability and the strength and the might comes from to stand firm against the devil. Put on the full armor of God so that you be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, and then he describes this spiritual armor that you and I are to employ. We are to fight back. Uh, according to the National Geographic website, actually it's the website for kids, uh, it's the kids' version. Uh, they did an imp- uh, a story about the puffer fish. The puffer fish. It can inflate itself to a ball shape to evade predators. I remember when my first trip to California as a young person, I, I think we, I was about 11 years old, we went swimming in the ocean in a bay, and I had a snorkel and a mask, and there was this fish that was like this big around down below me there. It was all puffed up, and I found out later it was a puffer fish or a blowfish. They're clumsy swimmers. They fill their stomachs with huge amounts of water and sometimes even with air, and they blow themselves up several times beyond their normal size. Uh, But these blow-up fish aren't just cute. I didn't know it at the time. I wish I would have, but a puffer fish contains 
a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. Now, according to National Geographic, the toxin is deadly to humans, uh, 1,200 more, uh, times more deadly than cyanide even. Uh, there's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans, and there is no known antidote. I did not know that, or I wouldn't have been in the water at all. Uh, but you know what? Like the puffer fish, this whole issue of pride, we as human beings can blow ourselves up with pride and arrogance to make us look bigger than we really are. Uh, and this pride can become toxic to marriages, to churches, to friendships. No wonder the Bible scholar John Stott once said, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Augustine said this about the devil. He said, The devil is like a mad dog that is chained up. He is powerless to harm you, but when we are outside of his reach, but once we enter his circle, we expose ourselves to injury or harm. And that's what we are told here, that we are to resist the devil. What is the result? If we resist, he will flee from us. Take a stand, he will flee. And we see numerous examples in the Gospels about Satan's uh, uh, demons uh, fleeing when they are uh, stood against by Jesus and others. So we are, <clears throat> uh, we are to take a knee, submit to God, fight back, withstand, resist the devil, draw near as the third one. The third road sign in the first part of verse 8. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Drawing, coming near to God is in repentance, in faith, obedience is what uh, James is talking about here. And God will come nearer to you. He will fill us with grace, crown us with blessing is how he will do that. So how do we do that? How do we draw nearer to God? Remember he's addressing people who are already believers in Jesus Christ. They are near in the sense because God reached out to them, opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we can never be separated from him. We are secure. We have assurance of our salvation. But how do we draw near? Because sin breaks our fellowship, not our relationship. And these believers, as well as the church through the ages, has been wrought and racked with sin. Well, when our fellowship is broken is what sin does with our fellowship with God himself but our relationship is secure because that is provided by Jesus Christ. But how do we approach God? How do we get back into fellowship with him? Well, we clean up, clean up our act. Notice in the second part of verse 8, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And it's cleansing, those two commands, cleansing and purifying. And uh, sinners there, remember this was written to a primarily Jewish people, who were believers in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And so Old Testament would resonate with them. They were steeped in Old Testament teachings. And so cleansing and purification would resonate with them. They're verbs that refer to ceremonial cleansing that we see in the Old Testament law, in the Decalogue, a figure that spoke eloquently to them. The need for cleansing is clear from the way addressed his readers, you sinners and you double-minded. Remember, sinners in the Old Testament referred to anybody who was outside of God's law in the covenant community. That's why Jesus took such heat when it said he, had, he sat with tax collectors and sinners because they were outside of the covenant community. They were not following the Jewish law. And so we are to cleanse our hands. Why our hands? Because hands are the expression, if you will, the action point of disobedience to God. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, there is a divided allegiance. In other words, we're divided in our allegiance. It means we stop making excuses for bad attitudes and other things. Uh, When we lived in the upper Midwest, going back to NFL football days, uh, everybody there is a Green Bay Packer fan, a rabid Green Bay Packer fan. In fact, I started a 12-step program to try to get them off of that. And the first step is you had to admit there's a higher being. The second step, you had to admit that it's not Vince Lombardi. And, uh, uh, but they were just rabid. And, of course, I was pretty much a Dallas Cowboy fan. And, uh, yeah, I heard that. I heard that. I knew it. Uh, but we went to some friends who were rabid Packer fans, and I, we had some shirts made, T-shirts made, and it was a, a half of a star of the Dallas Cowboy logo and then the other half of the Green Bay logo with a G. Welded together, and at the bottom it said Cowpack. <laughs> I was trying to prove my divided allegiance. It didn't go over very well. They saw right through that one. But we don't want to have be double-minded Stop making excuses for our bad attitudes, for casual unkindness, for clever put-downs of others, for dabbling in pornography, for bragging about our accomplishments, for envy of others, for bitterness, for a critical spirit, for our prayerlessness, for our need to be in control, for giving in to despair, for hating our enemies instead of loving them, and for our failures to do what we ought to do. In Hosea, the the minor prophet Hosea in chapter 10, verse 12, he puts it this way, and this is out of the New Living Translation. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts, for now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. Those of you in ag know that sometimes plowing is hard work. It means digging up rocks and pulling the weeds and breaking up the stony ground and uh, that happen to keep good fruit and good produce from growing. But if we, by God's grace, do this hard thing, the Lord promises to send rain that produces new life with joy and the first fruits of heaven. So we, we need these things to clean up our lives. The fifth road sign is get serious. Look at verse 9. Uh, by the way, I don't know, some of you should maybe choose this as your life verse. You know, everybody should have a life verse. Listen to verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Boy, isn't that a happy verse. I'll tell you. Yeah. Basically, in summary, it means to have a contrite heart. A contrite heart, a repentant heart. A contrite spirit of confession is essential for God's cleaning, cleansing. When you think about the cleansing and purifying, we need to be serious about that. As I said last week, the word that is translated repent or repentance occurs some 58 times in the New Testament, and a vast majority of those occurrences of repent are directed at people who are Christians, who are believers in Jesus Christ. And we think of this contrite spirit. There are two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Let me read you about these saints who grieved over their sins. The first one was King David. He portrays his grief of sin in many of the Psalms, but in this one he pleads for God's mercy and he cries out in Psalm 6-6, I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears, all because of his personal sin. That is godly sorrow. That is the fulfillment of verse 9. Paul, the Apostle Paul, describing his struggle with sin, exclaims in Romans chapter 7, 
Verse 24 through 25, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our only hope. When we look in the mirror and we're sick of what we see, when we look at our lives and we're totally upset with ourselves, this is the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This isn't exactly this verse 9. This isn't your best life now, is it? It kind of jars our sensibilities when you read that. Uh, it, It doesn't sound like the abundant life or the life that wins. In fact, it runs counter to I want to be happy all the time version of Christianity that is all around us. You know, that is much of the preaching today is we just want you to be happy. And yet James is not talking about that. Be wretched, he says. Who wants to be wretched? Mourn, don't worry, be happy, they would tell us. Weep, now that is a real downer. Who wants to weep all the time? And if we laugh, we should stop that and start mourning. If we have joy, we need to turn it into gloom. Uh, You know, if we just look at the verse on a surface level like that, I would agree it seems like a great downer. But let's step back and ask ourselves, what is James talking about? What does he mean here by all of this? We have to ask at least three questions. First of all, is he a killjoy? No, that can't be right because in chapter 1, verse 2, he says to have joy in all of our trials and tribulations. There's a joy part of him. So that's not the answer. Is James, uh, to quote Spiro Agnew, vice president under Richard Nixon, is James a nattering nabob of negativity? (laughs) I love that. I still like that. Whatever it is, that's not who he is. That's not who James is. Is he a frowning Puritan? You know, the Puritans have gotten a bad rap in our early history. That's not fair because if you read the Puritans, you will find that they were extremely happy in God. No, James wants us to get serious about our relationship with God. When theologian R.C. Sproul uh, died in December of 2017, there was an article written in the Washington Post about R.C. Sproul. And the author uh, did a lot of research And he located Sproul's huge influence in the fact that he believed in the theology of John Calvin. And this led to this sentence. He wrote this about R.C. Sproul. Sproul believed that we are more sinful than we usually think we are. We are more sinful than we usually think we are. And that's spot on accurate. And that's James's assessment here. And it's uh, true of our own lives. Most people, even those who don't go to church, would agree that they are sinners and that they have made mistakes, that nobody's perfect. It's hard to get people to believe in the concept. But the Bible goes much further. It tells us that sin has affected every part of the human life, that we were spiritually dead, spiritually blind, lost, separated from God, and without hope in the world. The Bible reveals the solemn truth that all have sinned and fallen short of God in Romans 3.23. We've missed the mark. The human race is lost, broken, dead, blind, deaf to God's truth, and in a state of perpetual rebellion. And so separated from God, we're under his wrath and bound for eternal punishment. And that's what God says about the whole human race. And so we think about that. If you think that's too hard, you can't handle the truth, this verse makes no sense to you. Uh, But it all depends on your evaluation of yourself. You know, small sinners need a small savior. Moderate sinners need a moderate Savior. Big-time sinners need a big-time Savior. And by the way, the Bible says we're all big-time sinners in that sense. 
we need to be wretched, mourn, weep, start crying, and uh, it opens up the door to the abundant life that each one of us seeks. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning, the Old Testament tells us, when we take God serious, get serious, be contrite, repentant, keep short accounts with God. He is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us and declare us righteous. That's why we need a great high priest in heaven, one of the titles of the Savior in his post-ascension ministry in heaven. So what is the result? What is the result? Verse 10, the final one is to stay low, stay low. Humility, look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The command is to humble yourselves. You know, when you think about that, that is a great example of God's grace that he allows us to humble ourselves, that, he, that we don't have to wait for him to humble us. <clears throat> Professor Howard Hendricks was asked about his advice when someone got a promotion at their job, and his advice was simple. Lie low and exalt Christ. Lie low and exalt Christ. That's a good word for all of us. We can brag about ourselves, but at the same time, we cannot exalt Christ. We can't do both at the same time. This is an admonition for each one of us. So this command, humble yourselves. James returns to the subject. He started in uh, verse 6. He gives grace to the humble. And he tells us that he will lift us up. The theme is prominent through all of Scripture. Psalm 149 in the Psalms, For the Lord crowns the humble with salvation. Proverbs 3.34, The Lord gives grace to the humble. Ezekiel 21.26, The lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. In the Gospels, in Matthew 23, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the Epistles, 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up. And last, the Scriptures teaches that humility has a vertical and a horizontal aspect. The believer who shows humility toward God also shows it towards other people. Again, St. Augustine writes, If you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. First, second, and third, humility. Think of a person you know and you consider to be very humble. It's great at humility. They don't even know it, but it's just their, their way of life. And isn't it true that you like to be around them because they're not puffing themselves up like the puffer fish? They're not bragging about their accomplishments. Uh, but if they brag about anything, it's about what Jesus Christ has done for them. So that's the command. Humble yourself. And the promise is he will exalt you. The way up is down. The way up is down. If you humble yourself, the Lord will raise you up. One final thought keeps ringing in my head as I studied this passage this week. Verse 6 reminds us, that God opposes the proud, ponder that for a moment. Could a Christian be the enemy of God? One of his children be an enemy? I think so, yes. If that's not true, then these words of James have no application to most of us. Could God be opposed to one of his own children, even though he loves them with everlasting love? The answer is yes, because God loves us so much that he will not leave us the way we are. His love leads us and leads him to oppose our pride, our anger, our loose tongue, our lust, our unkind spirit, the excuses we make for sin. We put off dealing with our issues because we think it will cost too much to deal with them. 
James is calling us to deal with the issues in our lives. That's a huge mistake if we don't deal with it. Sin left untouched always grows. It's like a deadly cancer that is untreated. Sin always spreads because it is the cancer of the soul. We can humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord, or we can go on living the way we want until God decides to humble us. The choice is ours. Every blessing awaits those who will humble themselves before the Lord. And that's good news for all of us, because God wants to help us take these words to heart. So the answer to conflict within ourselves, with others, and with God is to humble ourselves, not allow pride to get a foothold in our lives. And so the final question is, is do these six actions mark your life? Do they mark my life? Remember, I'm taking the task too as I study, as I read God's word. Uh, All of us are in this together. First of all, take a knee, submission to God. Fight back, resistance to the devil. Draw near, closeness to God in fellowship with him. Clean up, cleansing and purity. That means confession of sin. Get serious, repentance to have a change of mind, to change our direction, and finally to stay low, to practice humility, uh, to believe that God is going to honor that. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we pray that you would grant us the grace that we might humble ourselves in your sight. Show us where pride has taken root. Shine the light of your word on our hidden parts of our heart and those chambers that uh, we reserve for the sin of our lives. Where we have sinned, have mercy. Restore us, O Lord, that we we may rejoice in you once again. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, as you take these words, as you take this passage of Scripture, as these six uh, signposts on this journey of life, that we would remember them, that we would go back and review them, and that, Lord, we would honestly analyze where we're at. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so faithful, and your Holy Spirit will teach us. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.